There is a message for you. Who's calling? There is no identification. What's the message? Message as follows. It is dangerous to remain here. You must leave within 40 seconds. What? Do you want me to repeat the message, Dr. Holloway? Who recorded it? This is not a recording. Who's sending it? There is no identification. I don't understand. Neither do I. Is this by voice or keyboard? I don't know. My response is, we don't have enough fuel for an earlier departure. The answer is, I am aware of these facts. Nevertheless, you must leave within 30 seconds. How? Who the hell is sending this? I'm sorry, Dr. Holloway. I don't know. Well, tell whoever it is that I can't take any of this seriously unless I know who I'm talking to. Dr. Holloway? Yes? The response is, I come from the University of Manchester. Do you want me to repeat the last response? No, no. Uh, tell whoever it is that I can't accept that identification without proof. The response is, I understand. It is important that you believe me. You must leave within ten seconds. What will happen? Something wonderful. My God. It's full of stars. The Jodcast. Your indispensable guide to astronomy every month. With Nick Rattenbring, Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Lisa Harvey-Smith, David Alt, Ian Morrison, and Tim O'Brien. The Jodcast. April issue. Hello and welcome to the April edition of the Jodcast. Glad you could be with us. Thank you for downloading us. This month, Nick finds out all about gamma ray bursts from Dr. Paul O'Brien at the University of Leicester. Lisa Harvey-Smith is at Jive in the Netherlands. Stuart is in New Zealand at the Mount John Observatory. Megan updates us on how Stardust is doing and also brings us all the latest astronomy news. And of course, we've got your favourites, Ask an Astronomer with Tim O'Brien and The Night Sky with Ian Morrison. But before we kick off, let's have the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, new results from the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, first pictures from Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter as it reaches the Red Planet, early findings from Stardust challenge ideas of comet formation, Cassini discovers further evidence of water on Saturn's moon Enceladus, and a total solar eclipse was viewed from Africa, Turkey and Russia. In February of 2003, the first results from the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, commonly known as WMAP, were published. On March the 16th of this year, the long-awaited results from the first three full years of observations were released. Launched in 2001, WMAP has been observing the cosmic microwave background in detail for almost five years. This is the relic radiation left over as a result of the Big Bang explosion, which created our universe around 13.7 billion years ago, and was first discovered by Penzias and Wilson in 1965. WMAP has been mapping the distribution of fluctuations in this background radiation, producing the most accurate picture of the very early universe ever created. The CMB is not uniform in nature. 
the COBE satellite detected fluctuations in the smoothness of the temperature of this radiation and fractions of a degree. And WMAP has now mapped these fluctuations down to smaller angular sizes and with greater sensitivity than ever before. But it has also measured the polarisation of the CMB. Light which is reflected is often polarised. This is why Polaroid sunglasses reduce glare from a wet road surface. Theorists say that the photons reaching us in the CMB radiation were reflected from electrons in the universe. So, by studying the distribution of polarisation over the sky, we can learn something about the properties of electrons in the early universe. While the Spirit rover struggles along on the surface of Mars, with only five of its six wheels operational after one failed in mid-March, the latest spacecraft arrived in orbit around the Red Planet. NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter successfully fired its engines in March to begin the six-month braking manoeuvre which will place it in its final orbit. The camera systems were tested on March the 24th, when the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, or HiRISE, was pointed at the surface. From the orbiter's height at the time, some 2,500 kilometres above the surface, the camera can produce images with a resolution of only 2.5 metres per pixel. By the time it settles into its final orbit, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter will be able to take pictures with a resolution of 28 centimetres or 11 inches per pixel, by far the most detailed images ever taken from Mars orbit. As well as the high-rise camera, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter carries two other cameras, a spectrometer which will help identify mineral deposits on the surface of the planet, radar experiments to look for subsurface water, a radiometer to investigate the atmosphere, and several engineering, navigation and communications experiments. Mars isn't the only planet under the spotlight at the moment. On the 11th of April, the European Space Agency's spacecraft Venus Express will begin manoeuvres to put it into orbit around Venus. This probe was built by reusing as far as possible the designs from ESA's Mars Express, currently operating in orbit around the Red Planet. Venus Express carries instruments to investigate the tenuous magnetic field caused by the interaction between the atmosphere of Venus and the solar wind and an array of cameras, spectrometers and radar experiments to probe the atmosphere of Venus in great detail. Early analysis of the cometary dust samples, collected from the comet Vilt 2 and returned to Earth earlier this year by the Stardust Sample Return Capsule, shows some surprising results. The Stardust probe flew by Vilt 2 in 2004, and used a grid of aerogel blocks to collect samples of dust particles from the comet's tail. Current theories of how the solar system formed say that comets were probably formed a long way from the Sun in the outer reaches of the solar system. One reason for this is their high proportion of volatile materials, for example water ice and minerals which are only stable solids at low temperatures. The preliminary analysis of some of the Vilt II material suggests that comet formation and the formation of our entire solar system may not be as simple as previously thought. There will be more on the early results from this experiment later in the show. The latest discovery by the Cassini spacecraft in orbit around the planet Saturn is evidence of water on Enceladus, one of the ringed planet's moons. The Cassini probe arrived in orbit around Saturn in July 2004 and has been imaging the planet, its ring systems and satellites ever since. During the mission so far, in addition to the immense collection of photographs, Cassini has used a collection of spectrometers, radar instruments and magnetometers to investigate the Saturnian system in detail, and released the European Huygens probe, which travelled through the atmosphere of Titan and landed on the surface in 2005. By pointing Cassini's cameras at Enceladus, 
the imaging team have detected jets coming from the region of the south pole of the moon. The scientists who took the images, led by Dr. Carolyn Porco at the Space Science Institute in Boulder, Colorado, have suggested that these jets could be water geysers, erupting from pockets of liquid water under the surface. One conclusion from this is that there must be something heating the south pole of Enceladus, a rocky body only 300 miles across. One possible explanation for this heating is the gravitational effect of Saturn and the larger moons, which stretch and compress Enceladus during its orbit, causing heating of the rock. The Cassini mission will continue for as long as the probe continues to function, so there will be further images from Enceladus which will help unravel the story further. Finally, on the 29th of March, people across large parts of Africa and Europe witnessed a total eclipse of the Sun. Solar eclipses occur when the Moon passes directly between the Earth and the Sun, blocking out the Sun's light and casting a shadow on the surface of the Earth. The track which the shadow follows on the Earth is known as the Path of Totality, and can be up to a few hundred miles across. The path of this eclipse began over the southern mid-Atlantic, crossing large parts of Africa, including Ghana and Libya, before moving on to Turkey and then Russia. The longest period of totality, the place where the sun was eclipsed for the greatest length of time, occurred in the desert of southern Libya, where observers were treated to four minutes and seven seconds of darkness in the middle of the day. Here at Jodra Bank, the moon only covered about one quarter of the sun's disk, but the day was predictably cloudy during the eclipse itself. We were lucky enough to get a short period of thin cloud around the time of maximum eclipse, before the sky clouded over again. Two familiar voices from the Jodcast were lucky enough to be in Turkey to witness the event firsthand, and there will be a report from them later in the show. Thanks for that, Megan, and you can indeed hear those reports later on in the show. Now, Nick found out about a phenomenon that kept the American military guessing a couple of decades ago when he met Dr. Paul O'Brien of the University of Leicester. Okay, with me today is Dr. Paul O'Brien from the University of Leicester. Uh, Dr. Paul O'Brien is an expert in gamma ray bursts, and he's with us today to explain what they are. Thank you for coming and being with us today. That's my pleasure. So please tell us, what are these things called gamma ray bursts? Well, you have to cast your mind back to the 1960s, and at the time... The Americans and Russians, who of course never trust each other, had launched satellites to look out for nuclear explosions in space. They were looking for nuclear weapons tests in space. And one of the signatures of a blast of high-energy material is uh, an explosion of gamma rays. A gamma ray is a very high-energy piece of radiation. So radio waves are one end of the electromagnetic spectrum. And gamma rays are right down at the other end. So, the so you you have something like light, which we could see with our own eyes. That's right. And gamma rays would be more energetic, less They're energetic? much more energetic. So radio waves are the least energetic. Then you have um, microwaves, infrared, optical, ultraviolets, then x-rays. And then gamma rays are right at the other end. So they're right. the most energetic photons that come through the universe. And the advantage of them is they can penetrate practically anything in terms of dust or gas. So we can see them right across the universe. Right. Do, they, do these gamma rays actually reach us here on Earth? Down where we, where, they where can't get through the atmosphere, fortunately for us, because they'd be rather dangerous to our health. Hmm. Um, so we have to launch satellites to see them. So we didn't start gamma ray astronomy till the space age. Right. Um, they're actually quite easy to detect, even in the 1960s with fairly crude detectors. They could see them very easily. So 
gamma ray bursts, for instance, were first discovered by very small detectors on military satellites. These are the ones looking for nuclear explosions. They were looking for nuclear explosions. One of the signatures is this burst of high-energy radiation, a gamma ray burst. And to their horror, they started to find gamma ray bursts. Unfortunately, they didn't declare war. They instead (laughs) called in the scientists, as one does. And finally, in the early 70s, this information was declassified, and they announced to the uh, astonished community that they'd found a brand new type of source which appears at random on the sky. You can't predict where they're going to happen. They last anything from a thousandth of a second up to a thousand seconds Mm. and then they fade away. So a few weeks later, there's nothing to be seen. So these satellites, these military satellites discovered something they weren't expecting. They were perhaps expecting to see or at least detect nuclear explosions around the Earth from, you know, perhaps the Russians or maybe even the U.S. testing yeah. their, their nuclear weapons in near-Earth orbit, let's say. That's right. But these satellites found emissions of gamma rays from all over the sky. Yeah, they come the from Earth. any direction, and they weren't coming from near the Earth, or near the Moon was another place you could test. So they concluded fairly quickly that they were coming from probably at least the edge of the solar system and probably much further away than that. Did anybody have any ideas what these things were at that time? Uh, Pretty soon afterwards, theorists, being what they are, came up with about 200 different theories for gamma ray births. Some of them turned out to be right. Uh, They ranged, the craziest one was alien spaceships, the exhaust of an alien spaceship. Naturally, it's always aliens. It's always aliens. Uh, There were comets falling on neutron stars. And then there were more sensible things like supernovae and uh, the merger of neutron stars. And those two theories are the ones that we... Uh, think work today. Right. What happened then and in the years after uh, the declassification of these uh, gamma ray bursts? You can put a gamma ray detector on most satellites. They're not that big. So that's what they did. They would uh, hitch a lift on practically any spacecraft. Um, So throughout the 70s and 80s, the Americans, the Russians put gamma ray detectors on and, and picked up bursts quite easily. But these detectors had very poor angular resolution. They couldn't pinpoint exactly on the sky where the burst was coming from. Maybe an area a few times the size of the full moon, that sort of... And in uh, astronomical terms, that's a, that's a huge area, It's a it? huge area. If you think how many stars or galaxies there are in an area like that on the sky, it's enormous. So you can't tell which one it came from. Right. So these, these, these detectors could point to a vague direction in the sky and wave their finger around and say, oh, roughly over there yeah, somewhere. sort of somewhere to the left of the moon or something. Right. But that didn't really help. And we didn't make any real progress until uh, the early 90s. There was a satellite called the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory went up. And uh, that found nearly 3,000 gamma ray bursts. So although it, again, didn't have very good angular resolution, it found an awful lot of them. And what they discovered was that they were completely random on the sky. And that means they're either coming from very close to us, so they're all around us, right. or they're coming from very far away. But they were unlikely to be coming from the disk of the galaxy, because if they were, you'd see them against the Milky Way. Right, they'd be all lined up pretty yeah, much you know, right. in the they, same same direction. Yeah. yeah, you get this strip across the sky just like you see the Milky Way on a, on a dark night. So they're either very close to us or very far away, very far away. Nothing between, I see. So the, then we had to figure out which one of those was right. And to do that, we had to wait for the next satellite, which was an Italian-Dutch mission called Beppo Sachs. And Beppo Sachs was able to turn around within a few hours and point its X-ray telescope 
the gamma ray burst. And in 1997, the very first one was pinpointed in X-rays. So the, the, these gamma ray bursts don't just emit gamma rays, they also emit X-rays, no. presumably other That's stuff. That's right. As the, so a gamma ray burst um, has material that comes out of the center very fast, and it interacts with anything around the gamma ray burst. So it could be the interstellar medium, it could be the remains of a star, whatever. And as it hits that material, it generates X-rays, optical, and, and so on. Right, so there's interaction of this, perhaps a big shock or a fireball coming out with That's right. surrounding can... material causes other interactions and emissions at other wavelengths. Yeah, we think the gamma-ray burst actually doesn't send out light in all directions. It sends it out in a jet. So it's ah. like a searchlight pointing at us. So if we're looking down that jet, you can see the gamma-ray burst. If it was pointed, say, at 90 degrees to us, we wouldn't see it. Presumably that means that we, there, there should be lots more gamma-ray bursts occurring than what we actually see. Absolutely. We see about one a day, uh, but for every one we see, there may be a hundred or a thousand that we don't see. So there's an awful lot of gamma-ray bursts in the universe. Mm. One of them was found a few years ago, which is several hundred million light-years away. It's one of the closest ones we've found. And that actually partly ionized the top of the Earth's atmosphere for a few hours. Is that right? So you, what, what do we see? Do we see something like the aurora, perhaps? Yeah, it, it actually changed the uh, satellites and the telescopes that look at the Earth's ionosphere. It picked up a change in the Earth's ionosphere due to that burst, and that was hundreds of millions of light years away. That's fantastic. So if it was, say, a thousand light years away, then that's very bad news, because the danger from them is not so much from the burst itself, but the burst damages the Earth's atmosphere. In particular, it would damage the ozone layer, which we all worry about, mm. and then the sun gets us. The sun's UV radiation damages life on Earth. So if one did go off near us, that would be very bad news. Do these gamma-ray bursts have uh, implications for how likely life is to evolve in our galaxy. Is that a serious consideration? It is a serious yes, it's been factored in. So what people have concluded is that if you're on a planet going around a star which is next to objects that could make a gamma-ray burst, you're very unlikely to get far as life because that gamma-ray burst will go off and essentially sterilize your planet. Right. So we are fortunate that we're going around a star First of all, the stars are very quiet, so that's good news. Mm. And we're not near any massive stars that are likely to go gamma-ray burst. So we live in a fairly quiet part of the galaxy, which may be why life has developed here at all. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So let's, let's talk actually now about what the best ideas are for what a gamma-ray burst actually is. We've been talking about these massive explosions and, and, and producing uh, copious amounts of energy. Well, what is the so-called central engine of a gamma-ray burst. What is it? We've talked about supernova and neutron stars. What's the best idea? Well, the best idea, as ever, when astronomers don't know what's going on, they think it's a black hole. Um, but we think it really is. So the most likely scenario for most bursts is that you start off with a massive star. And massive stars don't live very long. They live a few hundred million years. And at the end of their lives, the core of the star collapses. And that triggers what we know as a supernova. But for some reason that we don't fully understand, in some supernovae, which seem to be the stars that are spinning very rapidly, the most rapidly rotating massive stars, create a black hole in the centre. That's the core of the star collapses down. And then that black hole is fed material from the star for a few tens of seconds. So it's drip-feeding matter in. Right. And then using good old Einstein's equals mc squared equation, you convert some of that matter into energy, and that blasts these jets out. 
So we have a black hole which forms from the collapse of a massive star, and subsequent to that, material around the star gets pulled in, stripped, squashed, squeezed, and when we know we know that when matter gets squashed, squeezed, ripped apart, then that can be used to or emits energy, and this is what we see as a gamma ray burst. That's right. Okay. So the jet then gets launched, and the jet punches its way out through the star. It takes about 10 seconds, and it eventually reaches the top of the star, and then it's moving into what is a vacuum. So it can accelerate to enormous speeds. And in fact, this is the fastest moving material we know of in the universe. It's going at 99, I must get this right, it's going 99.999999% the speed of light. Then blasts its way out and runs into whatever's around the star. And that so this is actually this is actually some sort of this is actually material. It's not, material, not light itself, because we know that light travels at, at the speed of, of light. That's right. But this, this is this is actually physical stuff which is moving stuff. so close to the speed of light. Almost, might as well call it the speed of light. Might as well. It's so close. That's right. It smacks into surrounding medium. So it's carrying energy, and you get shocks set up in this jet of material, and that creates eventually the radiation that we see. Right. And because we don't necessarily see uh, radiation at particular uh, frequencies, we see a range of uh, a, a range of frequency emission because there's different physical processes occurring. Is that right? When, That's right. When yes. the jet hits the surrounding medium, you get all sorts of interesting physics going on. So you mm-hmm. have X-ray emission. Do we have light emission? We have optical emission, infrared emission, and eventually we have radio emission. It all, in fact, the radio, it turns out, is the best to measure the total energy because everything ends up as just kinetic energy with this material, and it comes out, has to come out somewhere, and it comes out in the radio. Right. So if you wait a few weeks, you see a radio source, and you can measure the total amount of power, and that gives you the total energy that wasn't just in gamma rays, but was there all in everything. Right, I see. So what do we actually see? What do we actually observe here on Earth, or with our, with our space satellites? What do we see? Well, the first thing we see is a flash of gamma rays. So we see an enormous increase. Uh, this becomes the brightest gamma ray source in the universe. It has more power than the rest of the universe put together in gamma rays. It outshines the whole universe. We see something that's maybe 10,000 million times the power of a normal star. That's remarkable. It's an absolutely vast amount of energy. But just for a brief moment. Just for a few seconds. It doesn't last very long. So a gamma ray burst in 10 seconds puts out more energy than our sun will do in 10 billion years. So it does all its thing all at once. That's essentially the entire lifetime of the of, of the sun. That's the lifetime in of the ten sun seconds. in 10 seconds. Yeah. That's, why, that's why you don't want to be next to yeah, one. You want to be next one of those and they go off. Yeah. Okay, so the satellites see this uh, prompt emission of, 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 of gamma rays. And then what next? So the satellites, these gamma ray satellites, um, trigger. They have software on board that's essentially looking all the time for an increase. And when it finds one, it then has to tell the astronomer, of course. So we have a network of communication systems set up, and these satellites send a signal, essentially like a text message, mm. down to the ground, and that's processed by a computer and sends out emails, page, text, whatever you want, uh, sort of wake up the astronomer problem. And there are literally about a 1,000 astronomers and observatories around the world that can pick up these messages. But anyone can get them. They're mm. totally free. Uh, and people then go and look with their own telescope to see whether they can see an optical source, an infrared source, radio source, whatever it is. Do we see uh, emission? Let's say I have I have a, a, a large optical telescope, and I get one of these messages from the satellite. 
I point my telescope in the direction that uh, the gamma ray uh, telescope in space tells me to look at. Mm-hmm. What do I see? Do I see? You would see an optical source if you if you had a sensitive enough telescope. The the range in brightness is very large, but you could see an optical source, and it wasn't there yesterday. So if you go and look on, say, the Digital Sky Survey, you'd see nothing probably mm-hmm. in that location, and you suddenly found this source. And then over the subsequent days and weeks, that source fades away, and you end up with nothing again. Right. So you see a transitory source, a variable source, but it only happens once. So it's there one minute and then gone the next. And presumably you can learn a lot about the, what's going on with the physics of these, the, 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 rem, the remainder of this explosion around the gamma ray burst as you watch the... Uh, as, as you watch this optical counterpart that's right. fade away. So we, we can see the burst itself, and we learn about the physics of the jet and so on. But we also use the, the light as a sort of background light source, and we can look at all the material between us and the gamma-ray burst. And this is one of the most exciting things recently, is we've started to find gamma-ray bursts that are very, very distant. And in fact, last September, we found one that was 13 billion light years away. It's almost at the edge of the observable universe. 13 billion light years away. Yeah. That's when the that's when the universe was very very young. Yes, the universe was about 700 million years old then. Right. So this was very close to when the first stars were made. And this is the exciting one of the most exciting things about gamma ray bursts is because they're individual stars, you don't have to wait for a black hole, massive black hole to form. You don't have to wait for a galaxy to form. You just have to wait for a star to form. Mm. And we think the first stars formed two or three hundred million years after the Big Bang. So this one that we found last September was very close to that edge. And it turns out to be very bright. So it wasn't a, a hard object to find. It was a very easy object to find. So we think we can find them right out to the edge. And so we can then use them as a light source. It tells us two things. One, there's something there. And the second, we can see material along the line of sight. So anything that's between us and the burst absorbs some of the light of the burst. So it's like you know, sticking a searchlight at some distance and then someone walks in front of it and you can tell that they're there. Because so, the light suddenly disappears and comes back again. That's yeah. right. So the light doesn't vary like that for absorption, but it's, it takes some of the light away. And so you can tell something's there and you can tell how far away that something is. Mm-hmm. So we can learn about the whole universe by using a GRB as a background light source. Is this the furthest, this, this particular gamma ray burst, is this the furthest thing that we've it's seen? Not quite. It's the third furthest thing, but it is only one star. The two things that were seen a little bit further, one was a quasar, that's a supermassive black hole, Mm -hmm. and the other is an entire galaxy. So we're already the third distance, and uh, in fact, of the, let me get this right, the ten most distant gamma ray bursts, we found eight of them in the last year. So we're pushing that boundary every day. Um, so we just have to wait. Uh, we'll get lucky one day and we'll find the most distant object if yes. they're there. So it's very exciting to have such a powerful source right at the edge when, when the universe is very, very young, right at the edge of what we can see That's here right. on Earth, shining brightly towards us in a range of frequencies that interact somehow with the, the stuff between us and it that we can learn about yep. what, what's going on in the universe mm-hmm. since early, early times. It's fantastic. Yep. Are we still seeing roughly one gamma ray burst a, a day? or Well, we have a new mission now, a mission called SWIFT. Yeah. Uh, SWIFT is a new satellite launched at the end of 2004, and SWIFT finds about two a week. It's slightly down on the one a day, but 
uh, that's in a sense a good thing because we have to investigate every bird. So if we had one a day, we'd be completely mad trying to follow them all up. Is so, SWIFT more accurate than uh, previous space missions? SWIFT is a lot more accurate because SWIFT has two things going for it. It has three telescopes on board. It has a gamma-ray telescope that finds the birds, and it has an X-ray telescope to pinpoint the X-ray emission and an optical telescope to pinpoint the optical emission. Um, so that's great. That means we don't have to rely so much on ground-based telescopes. But the other thing is that SWIFT, as its name implied, turns around very quickly. Right. So previously, when we wanted to use a satellite to look at a gamma ray burst, we had to turn the spacecraft, so something like Hubble Space Telescope, for instance. That turns around, and it would take about two hours to turn 90 degrees. SWIFT will turn that distance in one minute. Wow. So it is swift. It is swift. So it turns and points and gives us information very, very quickly. And it's, it's important to get the information very, very quickly, the yeah. position information, because that's when we want to get as much information as soon as we can about these uh, these gamma ray bursts as soon after they, they go off as possible. That's with, right. With a range of telescopes that are visible and the radio. Everything, yeah, because they're getting these things fade. So the sooner you're there, the more light you get from the burst. And so if you wait an hour, the burst may be a hundred times fainter than it was originally. So if you get there in a minute, you've effectively made your telescope bigger because you're getting more light. Yeah, of course. Um, so even, we do use quite a lot of amateur telescopes, for instance. We used uh, small telescopes, half meter size or smaller, around the world to look. And they can find these things uh, in the first few minutes, first hour, quite readily. Right. You mentioned before that uh, the most likely cause of a gamma ray burst is a massive star, a huge, huge star, which then undergoes a core collapse, forming a black hole, and material gets pulled into the black hole, mm -hmm. producing the gamma ray burst. Just how massive a star are we talking about here? We're probably talking about a star 30 times the mass of the sun, is our current best guess. Um, it, it could be maybe 20 times, but it's a pretty massive star. Yeah, it, it, are there any other ways of forming a gamma ray burst? The, 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 the theorist you mentioned had 200 ideas and, and a couple of them were okay. Yeah, this the, is one of them. What, is there any others? The other one is uh, connected to neutron stars. Right. Uh, now, neutron stars, I'm sure some of your listeners know, are made themselves when massive stars die. And if you can get a binary neutron star, that's two neutron stars going around each other, then it's possible for those two neutron stars to get closer and closer and closer over time and eventually they'll touch. And when they touch, you then form a black hole because right. the two things together cannot be a neutron star. They're too heavy. Mm. And if you can make a black hole that way, then you can also, in principle, launch a jet and have a gamma ray burst. It won't be as powerful as the big massive star ones. But in the last year, uh, SWIFT has pinpointed for the first time the locations of just a handful of sh these what are called short bursts. These are bursts that are maybe a second long, something like that, or even shorter. And these bursts, it turns out, cannot be massive stars dying. Uh, the galaxies that they're in don't have any massive stars in them, so they must be made by something else. Right. And they have all the properties that we would have expected from this binary neutron star. So it seems that both theories are right. Right, so there's two possible ways at the moment for, for forming a gamma ray burst to, a, to the best of our knowledge. Yep. That's fantastic research. It's very, very, very interesting. Dr. Paul O'Brien, thank you very much indeed for coming to us and, and speaking about gamma ray bursts. We wish you all the best for finding more of them in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Nick.
Now, for the last few months, Stuart has been on the other side of the world, taking surfing lessons and generally having a great time. However, he did find time to look around the Mount John Observatory on New Zealand's South Island under the guidance of Alan Gilmore, the resident superintendent of the observatory. We join them just entering the 60 centimetre telescope room. This is our 60 centimetre bottom Chivins telescope. It was installed at Mount John about 1975 and um, has for the last 10 years been used as the main telescope for the gravitational lensing work, the MOA program as it's called, MOA for microlensing observations and astrophysics. And that's named after a, a large, now extinct New Zealand bird, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, right. a flightless bird, yes, that, that was exterminated by the Maori when they arrived about a thousand years ago. Uh, there were about 23 species of MOA, but some of them were very big. Um, they're related to the, um, to the emu and entire class of, of, of birds. The telescope um, is now working at f13. It has six, I should explain it has a 60 centimetre mirror working at f13. Um, when it was being used by Moa, we had a different secondary mirror in it, so it worked at f6.25, and it made an image onto the camera, which is down there, a CCD camera, which has three large um, CCD or digital camera chips. Each is 2K by 4K pixels or 3 centimetres by 6 centimetres. So it covered 9 centimetres by 6 centimetres. On the sky, that was about 1.2 by 0.9 degrees, which is, roughly speaking, 4 full moons square on the sky. And that was used very successfully to find microlensing events in the centre of the Milky Way. Uh, and one of them in 2003 identified a, a Jupiter-sized planet around a distant star towards the centre of the galaxy and it was also much involved with um, another lensing event that was recorded early last year in 2005. Um, we're using it presently um, with a small CCD. This, uh, this is a, a commercial CCD made by Apogee in the US it has a CCD of 30mm square. I'm using it with a homemade focal reducer, which is based around an old um, slide projector lens, uh, so that the telescope, instead of working at f13, is working at about f7.8. So on the sky, that's covering about 11 minutes of arc square, which is about, about one third of a full moon's diameter. Um, just now, it's being used to look, to, to track do follow-up work on newly discovered near-Earth asteroids, near-Earth objects, or near-Earth objects that are returning uh, to the proximity of the Earth, so they're bright enough to see again objects discovered uh, months or sometimes years ago. And it's a program that my wife Pam and I have run photographically and now electronically for uh, over 30 years. And we're quite useful because we're one of the few programs in the Southern Hemisphere that's doing this. There's another one in Australia um, at Siding Spring Observatory. They're mostly concentrating on discovering these objects, though Rob McNaught um, at Siding Spring also does follow-up work. But there's really only Siding Spring and Mount John that are doing regularly doing this kind of work, uh, apart from one or two amateurs in Australia and in um, South America. 
the prime purpose of this aperture camera will be to do follow-up work on lensing events. When a lensing event is found, it will concentrate just watching that star changing brightness. A lensing event occurs when one star goes very, very precisely across the line of sight to another star, and the gravity of the foreground star bends the light of the background star and focuses it towards it. And that doesn't happen very often because it's very unlikely for one star to pass in front of another, but exactly. it does the happen occasionally. Yep, the lineup has to be exceedingly precise. Um, Albert Einstein predicted the effect about uh, 1938, I think, but he didn't think anybody would ever observe it because the lineup has to be so accurate. And you would have to monitor millions of stars in order to see a few events a year. 1938, that wasn't a practical proposition. Now, with electronic or digital camera type technology and modern computers, it's a relatively straightforward task. And so it is being done by a number of observatories around the world. Well, when they find one of these events, in fact, our 1.8 metre telescope specialises now in taking the sacks across the centre of the Milky Way and across the large cloud of Magellan, looking for these events. When one of these is found, this camera will, will basically just follow that star and watch to see if there are any unusual variations in it. Because if it's simply one star passing in front of another star, then you get a very characteristic sort of brightening, depending on how accurately the two stars are lined up. But if the foreground star has planets, then those planets will add extra little spikes to the graph. But those spikes only last a few hours, and so you have to have continuous follow-up, and that means uh, every available telescope um, needs to be watching it all the time to pick up these events. So New Zealand fills partly a longitude gap between Australia and South America, so ideally, if the weather's suitable, there will be a telescope here watching such events and watching for these small... So as the Earth rotates, things go out of view from Australia and come into view in, in New Zealand and then later on in South Africa, South, South America. South America, that's And then right. South Africa. And then South Africa. So you've got... This is the problem in the Southern Hemisphere. You've got lots of oceans, and so um, you, you do have these large gaps. But New Zealand is fortunate in that we're... we're at this observatory, we're 44 degrees south, so um, we have the centre of the Milky Way and the large and small clouds of Magellan in our sky for long intervals. So, weather permitting, we can keep these things under observation for long intervals through the night, so we more than cover um, the longitude gap between Australia and South America. I thought I'd just remind you that you can see the pictures from my trip at www.jodcast.net. If you want to hear more of Stuart's sound-seeing trip around the observatory, you can find that as well on the Jodcast website. Now, Stuart isn't the only person who's not been in this country recently. Lisa Harvey-Smith has been at Jive in the Netherlands and has sent us this report. Hello, my name's Lisa Harvey-Smith and I'm a support scientist here at the Joint Institute for VLBI in Europe, or Jive for short. Jive is located in the beautiful forests of Drenthe in Holland and it stands next to the Dwingelo Telescope, which was built over 50 years ago and has only recently been decommissioned. The Jive Institute was created in 1993 by a group of European research institutes and public scientific bodies. Its purpose is to support the European VLBI network, or EVN, in its technical and scientific operations. The EVN is a huge network of radio telescopes that stretches right across Europe and China. So what is a VLBI network? Well, many countries across the world operate large radio telescopes for astronomical research. 
Radio telescopes help us to see astronomical phenomena that are invisible to the human eye and to optical telescopes. Because radio telescopes look at long-wave radio energy rather than short-wave light, they need to have much larger collecting surfaces in order to see the same amount of detail. Why does this matter? Well, when astronomers point their telescopes at the sky, there are a number of important factors to consider. Firstly, we obviously want to be able to actually see the region that we're trying to observe, be it a distant galaxy, a supernova, or a star-forming region. This requires a sufficient collecting area, or photographic exposure time, to actually detect the object. Secondly, and more complicated, is that we often want to be able to focus in on the detail of the region. For example, if you point an optical telescope at a star, all you'll see is a point of light. Of course you can measure the spectrum or other properties of the star, but essentially it's just a point-like source. Look at a nearby galaxy, however, and with a sufficiently large telescope, a beautiful array of features become apparent, such as spiral arms and globular clusters. The amount of detail visible in an observation is called resolution, or resolving power, and this is the key aim of Very Long Baseline Interferometry, or VLBI. So let's get back to the individual telescopes and the best technology available to astronomers in 2006. The largest single radio telescope in the world is the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico. It's a staggering at 305 metres across and it has a collecting surface of around 20 acres. The world's largest optical instrument, the Keck Telescope in Hawaii, has a collecting area of only 10 metres in diameter. That's because optical telescopes need an extremely high surface accuracy because of the short wavelength of light they receive. This requires large mirrors made of glass or other materials which tend to sag and bend under their own weight. Even taking into account this vast difference in size, the Arecibo radio telescope is around 10 times worse at resolving fine details than the Keck. Fortunately, this mess can be resolved. Radio astronomers have come up with clever techniques to fight back against this natural wavelength disadvantage by linking up networks of telescopes across continents to form single giant radio telescopes capable of very high resolution observations of the universe. The EVN is one such network. It links 16 radio telescopes in 11 different countries to form one giant telescope with astonishing resolving power. Its resolution is so great, in fact, that if the EVN could see optical light, it would be able to read newspaper print from the distance of the moon. There is a great future ahead for VLBI, due to recent advances and ongoing projects involving astronomers from around the globe. One such project is the VLBI Space Observatory Program, which in 1997 launched an 8-metre radio telescope into orbit around the Earth. The space telescope, called HALCA, was put to work observing the sky together with a global network of ground-based radio telescopes. The result was a radio telescope twice the size of the Earth. The results were astonishing, with a resolution greater than any ground-based VLBI network could wish for. Sadly, HALCA observed for the last time in October 2003, but her successor is already being planned and is likely to be launched in 2012. So, VLBI is a powerful technique used by radio astronomers to stretch the boundaries of the visible universe. Research topics at my institute, JIVE, for example, are extremely diverse. They range from testing Einstein's theories of relativity using gravitational lensing, peering deep into stellar nurseries, and measuring massive disks around black holes at the centres of galaxies. These and many more fields of astronomy are made possible by VLBI.
And if you want to learn more about the EVN, or VLBI in general, you can have a look at the EVN website, which is www.evlbi.org. Or you can have a look at the Jive website, which is www.jive.nl. And both of those websites are in English. Until next time, goodbye. Thanks, Lisa. Now, as we reported in our February issue, the Stardust probe has returned to Earth. And here's Megan to refresh our memories as to what the Stardust probe is and give us an update on how we're doing with it. Stardust was successfully launched on February the 7th, 1999, to return particles from beyond the Earth-Moon orbit. Launched as part of NASA's Discovery Program, Stardust was to gather interstellar dust as well as comet dust from the comet Vilt 2 in a flyby which took place in January 2004. In order to meet up with the comet Vilt 2, the spacecraft made three loops around the Sun, meeting up with the comet on the second. Comets are made up of rock, dust and frozen gases, and are often referred to as dirty snowballs. They travel in highly elliptical orbits that bring them very close to the Sun and then throw them deep into space. As comets come close to the Sun, the surface begins to warm and volatile materials begin to evaporate. This evaporating gas takes grains of dust along with it and forms the coma and or tail of the comet. Comet Vilt 2 is special in that it has only made five close orbits of the Sun, so it should still have most of its dust and gases, and will be in a very similar condition to when it formed in the outer reaches of the solar system. The interstellar dust and the dust from the comet was collected in a substance called aerogel, a very light, silica-based material. This material was arranged in blocks known as cells in an aluminium frame on board the Stardust spacecraft. This aluminium frame containing the dust samples was returned to Earth inside the sample return capsule and landed at the US Air Force Utah Test and Training Range on January 15th of this year. Once the capsule was recovered, the aerogel containing the dust samples was carefully transported to the Johnson Space Center for the Stardust Curation Team to make an initial examination. Six months has been allowed for this initial investigation after which the samples will be distributed worldwide to groups of scientists to make a full analysis, which will include a team at the University of Manchester. The whole sample is expected to contain approximately 1,000 cometary dust particles and around 1,000 interstellar dust particles. Despite the fact that the analysis of the samples is in its preliminary stages, there have already been some interesting results. Inspections of some of the comet particles found in the aerogel have shown that they contain minerals formed in high temperatures close to the Sun when the solar system was forming. Comets are believed to have formed in the cold outer parts of the solar system, so these high temperature minerals must have been thrown out from the centre of the solar system somehow during its formation. The interstellar dust particles will be much more difficult to locate in the aerogel due to the small number that are expected to have been collected. So scientists have decided to enlist the help of the general public via Stardust at home. Using an automated optical microscope, scientists will provide movies of the aerogel. These movies will be created using images of a section of the aerogel taken at different depths. Participants will use a virtual microscope to view the movie to look for a dust particle. There will be 1.6 million movies in total, covering the whole of a 1,000 cm squared aerogel sample. Each movie will be sent to at least four participants, and if the majority report a positive detection, the scientists will then inspect the sample to locate the particle. The movies are currently in preparation and will be available on the 5th of April, and anyone wishing to participate should register at the Stardust at Home website. Right, thanks for that, Megan. 
Now, to answer all of your burning questions, here's Nick Rattenbury with Tim O'Brien with Ask an Astronomer. All right, now it's time for Ask an Astronomer, the segment where you get your questions posed to Dr. Tim O'Brien. Thanks again for coming along and asking the que- answering the questions, Tim. That's okay. Okay, now we've got a very simple one to start off with, and it is, why do stars shine? Okay, um, right, I mean, the, sim- the simple answer to this is that they're hot. So a star's a very hot object, and hot objects shine. So, um, for example, if you took a... Um, if you took a, a bit of metal or something and you heated it up in a fire or something like that, you'll notice that it starts to glow. Um, and it's basically it's exactly the same reason why stars shine. So if you think about the sun, um, the surface of the sun is at a temperature of about 6,000 degrees. Right. And it shines this sort of yellowy, orangey colour, I guess, um, just because it's a very hot object at about 6,000 degrees at the surface. So if you took a took a lump of metal and you heated it up in a fire, uh, and you heated it up to that sort of temperature, it'd melt, of course. Um, but on the way, it'd start glowing, um, right. and it's the same reason. So if you had a uh, an electric hob on your stovetop at home, and you turned it right up high, you start to see the thing glow a nice deep red. That's right. But it's not yellow, so presumably that means that uh, different temperatures correspond to different colours. That's, that ab- that's absolutely right, and that's one of the classic ways in which astronomers can... We can learn things about the universe without having to go and, um, you know, fly to these objects to find out what the temperature is and stick thermometers in them or whatever. Um, we can actually sort of look at the colour of a star and we can measure its temperature. We can take its temperature that way remotely. Um, so the red stars are the cooler ones. Oh. Um, maybe a few thousand degrees at the surface, which still sounds quite hot, but for a star it's fairly cool. Um, and then as the stars get hotter, they work their way through the spectrum. From the from the red end of the spectrum all the way up to the blue end and even into the even into the ultraviolet for the for the very hottest stars maybe forty fifty thousand degrees or so. So our sun, which is a, a yellow a yellowy mm. star, mm. where does that sit in the in the in the in the, the scheme mm. of things? Is mm. that a, is that a hot star or a cold star or mm. somewhere mm. in the middle? Mm. Uh, if you think if if you think about how many stars there are, there's actually more stars um, that are cooler than the sun than are hotter than the sun. So, in fact, the sun is, although commonly described as an average star, um, it's actually a little above average, I would say. An above average star, that's good to know. <laughs> We're going around an above average star. Yeah. Okay, that's good. So, stars shine because they're hot. Maybe we should answer the question, what makes them hot? Right, good question, yeah. We'd, 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 we'd missed out on that aspect of it. Um, okay, so the reason they're hot is because they're actually generating energy. Um, and they're actually generating energy deep in their cores. Um, so right down at the centre of the star, um, where in the case of the sun, there's nuclear fusion reactions um, where you take hydrogen atoms and you squish them together to make helium atoms. And every time you do that, you get a little bit of energy out um, and added together with all the different fusion reactions that are going on in there, all the other hydrogen atoms that are being converted into helium, um, there's sufficient energy that powers the uh, that powers the sun, basically. So that's the root um, of all the energy that the sun that the sun is generating and, and shining as we see it. That's why it's such a bright thing in the sky. Let's go back a step. So stars are a great big ball of hydrogen Man. gas, mainly, yeah. with yeah. a little bit of helium and maybe some heavier elements thrown in. So what's occurring at the core is a process given the name thermonuclear fusion. We know all about uh, nuclear explosions here on Earth. Uh, is it the same kind of thing? There's two types of, uh, of nuclear uh, explosion. If you talk about bombs for a while, we don't like talking about that particularly, but if you talk about bombs for a while, then you've got your, your atom bomb, which is uh, 
which, which in fact relied upon fission, so it relies on breaking elements apart, um, maybe plutonium or uranium, um, and getting energy out that way. And there's also the fusion bomb, the hydrogen bomb, uh, which came a little bit later, which was which was relied on this same mechanism. So in effect, at the centre of the sun, you've got hydrogen bombs going off, going off all the time, which are basically the source of the energy. In terms of using nuclear power, um, you know, for peaceful purposes rather than making bombs, um, then so far we've we've only really been successful at making power stations that rely on nuclear fission, so breaking the elements apart, the heavier elements like uranium, plutonium. Um, we haven't, although people have been working on it for quite a long while now, uh, we haven't really managed to get hydrogen fusion working for any, in a stable way for any sufficiently lengthy period of time to make a power station out of. Maybe that will come. Maybe um, that will come. <laughs> so basically a star is essentially a great big nuclear power genera generator in space, but instead yeah. of using fission, which is what we're able to use here on Earth, it is using fusion. Absolutely right. So fission yeah. is breaking apart and fusion is smacking together. together. Yeah. And... So how does that generate energy? Um, really because there's a little bit of... In, in, in bringing together these two hydrogen atoms, if you like, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but in bringing these together to make a helium atom, um, there's a little bit of what we call binding energy that sort of uh, locks these things together that then becomes available um, from, from that fusion reaction. So that's really where it comes from. A little bit of the mass, in fact. If you, if you, weigh, if you, you sort of manage to weigh these two um, these components and you could sort of measure the masses of all the individual components that go up to make that helium atom, you'd find there was a little bit of mass missing afterwards. Um, and as we know from what Einstein told us, that, that mass and energy are equivalent, um, then the amount of energy you get out is equal to mc squared, where m is the mass that you've uh, lost, if you like, in that process, and c is the speed of light. So Brilliant. That's why stars shine. Yep. Okay, so the next question for Dr. Tim is, will the sun ever stop shining? Okay, so this is really a follow-on from this last question. We explained how the sun uh, does shine, that it's converting all these hydrogen atoms into helium atoms and getting energy out of nuclear fusion. And the obvious worry there is that eventually it's going to run out of hydrogen. So this fuel that it's using to, to power itself, to make it shine, uh, eventually that fuel runs out. Now, in fact, those, those nuclear fusion reactions take place deep, deep in the core of the sun, so it's really where the fuel is. That's where we've got to worry about where the fuel is. Now, um, when it runs out of fuel, because as indeed it will at some point in the future, um, different sort of changes happen to the star. It, um, it evolves, that's the phrase that we use in astronomy, is that the star starts to evolve. And if you think about it, what's happening at the moment is the sun's this incredibly massive object. There's a lot of mass in the sun, 2 times 10 to the 30 kilograms, that's a, two, that's a two followed by 30 zeros. So it's a very, 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 very heavy object, the sun, very massive. And it would like to actually collapse in on itself because its own gravity would want to force the sun to collapse down to become a smaller object. Okay? Now, that's really not happening at the moment. The sun isn't collapsing in on itself under its own weight. Uh, and the reason is because it's generating all this energy in the middle. And if you like, that's keeping it... Keeping it held up against its tendency, against its desire to collapse in on itself. So, so it's that, pushing out at the same time as gravity is trying to crush it back in again. That's and right. It's the, the, the energy being given off by the fusion yeah. reactions at its core, which yeah. is yeah. pushing sure. back against the force of gravity, trying yeah. to squeeze everything in. Okay, great. Yeah. So it's in a balance. It's, it's, uh, that's right. It's in a balance. It's in an equilibrium at the moment, in this balance between its tendency to collapse and its tendency to expand because of the energy being generated in the middle. So what happens when it eventually runs out of fuel is that that balance is disturbed. 
okay, because the, the, because the energy that's being produced in the middle um, stops being produced, and so the star will want to start to collapse. Now, in fact, that won't happen. There's no, no need to really worry about this for the next few weeks, because that won't happen for, the, uh, for another 5 billion years. So another 5,000 million years. Is so we're we okay for, for the time being. We're okay for the time being. Um, but the hydrogen fuel will run out in the core in, in about 5 billion years' time. What will then happen, actually, is that the central part of the core uh, will actually start to collapse. And what that will do, that's the bit that's basically where all the helium has been made now, um, what that will do is it actually brings in um, some hydrogen from slightly outside the core, and it brings that fresh hydrogen fuel closer into the centre where the conditions are more extreme, where the temperature's higher and the pressure's higher. And you can actually start fusion reactions again in this sort of, it's like a shell of hydrogen around the core. So you could start reactions again. So you will bring in fresh fuel, basically. That's what's going to happen. So has fusion stopped now in the core? Yeah, that's at that point you get you just get what's called hydrogen shell burning is right. what you get what you get, and the extra energy that's in, that's increased that's introduced at that point causes the outer layers of the star to start to expand, because you're dumping in a lot more energy from the sh the shell burning, and the outer layers of the star expand outwards to make what we call a red giant. So we call that a red giant because the star's bigger because the outer layers have expanded. And 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 let me guess, it's red. It's red, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. There's no fooling you today. You're no. on top four. Um, and why is it red, though? I should ask you that question. No, no, you asked. You answer the question. <laughs> I, I asked. So while well, we heard earlier on, in fact, that the reason stars are red is because they're cool. And in uh, fact, as the outer layers of the star expand, it cools down a bit. As you expand any, any gas like that, it cools down a bit. So in fact, you end up with this big, redder star. Now... As you, you hit upon an important point just a moment ago when you said do, do, do fusion reactions stop entirely on the core, well, in fact, they don't stop forever because they can start up again because as the core collapses, what happens is the conditions get sufficiently extreme, high temperatures, high pressures, high densities. All these atoms get squidged closer and closer together that you can actually start helium fusion reactions. So you can get helium to make the heavier elements like carbon and oxygen, for example, in the core. Um, so previously we had hydrogen being fused mm. together to form helium. Mm. Now we've got helium being mm. fused together to form a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm. Yeah, and right. the whole process c carries on. Uh, eventually you run out of helium in the core. Um, that core starts to uh, collapse a little bit again. Um, and you actually bring some fresh hydrogen and some fresh helium in from out the outer layers. And you can actually have sort of shells of hydrogen and helium burning, we call it, although really we should talk about fusion reactions going on. So you get a very complicated structure in the star, and the star can actually end up as this very large red giant, and it can end up pulsating, so it gets larger and smaller, sort of periodically. We call these things Myra variables. There's a star called Myra, which is a famous uh, red giant variable star like this, a pulsing star. And what happens is, eventually, the star gets so big that it's the, the force of gravity, the strength of gravity at its outer edge is so small that the outer layers get lost into space. They actually drift away from the star in, in, in a wind. So you end up basically losing all the outer layers of the star out into space, and you reveal at the centre this hot object, which is where all the nuclear reactions used to take place. Um, and that very, very hot object um, gives off a lot of ultraviolet light, very high energy light, um, which illuminates... Um, this shell of material, all this gas that used to be the outer layers of the star that spread off out into space. Uh, um, these are very beautiful objects to look at in space. We call them planetary nebulae. Yes. Um, sort of fuzzy objects is the nebula bit, mm -hmm. which is all the gas that was, that, that's been sent off into space. 
Um, the planetary bit comes, it's just a historical term because when they were first looked at, they, people thought they looked a bit like planets. Right. Um, so it's actually nothing really to do with planets at all. It's really, really a star story. Mm. Um, and you get these, they're, they're sort of lit up, very beautiful, sort of very interesting structures. Um, all the gas that's been in the outer layers, all illuminated by this thing at the centre. Now, the thing at the centre has got its own special name. We talked about red giants a minute ago. Um, the thing at the centre is called a white dwarf. Right. A white so dwarf. you can guess why that is, can't you? It's white yes. and it's small, presumably. Absolutely, absolutely right. <laughs> so that's very good. Um, so it's about the size of the Earth, in fact. Right. So that's how small it is. So it's the central part of the star that's actually collapsed down in on itself because it's not generating these fusion reactions anymore. It's run out of fuel. And it actually sits there as this sort of stable object now about the size of the Earth. The mass varies from maybe, you know, a half the mass of our sun up to... We think at maximum, we think the maximum mass they can be is about one and a half times the mass of the sun, um, but about the mass, about the size of the Earth. So they're very, very dense objects, initially very, very hot, because they mm. used to be the centre of a star, so you imagine right. they'd be very hot. Yes. And they're um, white. So and they're white. So this is what's going to happen to the sun. Okay? Right. This is what's going to happen to the sun in about five billion years. It will go through those those processes, those changes that we've just described. It will become a red giant first, and then the outer layers will just puff away gently, and eventually you'll end up with... Planetary, planetary nebula, nebula and a white dwarf. Yeah, the and the planetary nebula gradually dissipates into space and you're left with this white dwarf. So the question to will the... Coming back to the question, eventually, mm. um, will the sun ever stop shining? When I originally said the simple answer to it is yes, it will, in about five billion years when it runs out of hydrogen fuel. That's the common answer that people would give. Mm. Um, it's not really quite the true answer because, in fact, if you, if you accept that the white dwarf is still the sun at some level, it's the yes. central bit of the sun that's left over then that white dwarf will still keep shining. And right. what happens is the white dwarf itself is just a very hot thing. Yes. Okay, it's no longer generating any new energy. Right, so there's no, there's no further fusion reactions occurring yeah, in but this it's, white dwarf. Absolutely. So it starts off incredibly hot, and mm. so it does shine quite brightly initially. But as time goes by, because it's radiating away all its energy, it's gradually cooling down. Now, it turns out, and therefore getting fainter, dimmer, redder, Mm -hmm. Okay, and maybe at some point in the future it'll eventually get a black dwarf. So this star right. will eventually just become dark because it's not—it's cooled right down. It's just faded away. You know, if you stuck this, stuck your piece of wood in the fire, you burn it. It's hot. It's red, yes. and gradually it becomes this black sort of ember um, right. that, that fades away. That's what's going to happen to a white dwarf. But it turns out that the length of time it takes for it to cool down to become effectively invisible, a black dwarf, is actually longer um, than the age of the universe now. So, in fact, right. there so are, we don't think there are any white dwarfs in the universe that have been created so far that have actually cooled down sufficiently to become black dwarfs. Right. So, in fact, the sun, when it turns into a white dwarf, will keep on shining as a white dwarf for many billions of years after, effectively, the sun is dead, if you like. It's no longer generating its own energy. But because it was so hot to start with, it will still, still keep shining for a long, long time after that five billion years, but only as a white dwarf, and it fades away very gradually over the next few billions of years. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. That's all right. Thanks, Nick and Tim. Now, Tim was lucky enough to go with Ian Morrison to Turkey to view the solar eclipse that happened at the end of last month. Here we present to you part of their commentary from the few minutes of totality that they had. Oh, it's getting dark now. <laughs> Here we go, look, Venus. 
It's going. If you see Venus. Wow. That's the diamond ring. That's fantastic. Oh my god, look at that. Oh, that is terrific. Look at the red spots. Oh. Do you know, so it's a lot of red things. Look how dark it is. Do you see the prominences? Yeah, That's the top left. Yeah, top you. left, yeah. <laughs> you can see the filamentary stuff oh, in the corona. Right. Venus, look look. can Venus. we see Mercury? There's a lovely prominence is visible. Can you see Venus shining beautifully over above the trees by the beach? And we should see Mercury roughly halfway in between. And I can just see it. It's just above the lower bank of little light cloud there. So you can see Mercury, I hope. Otherwise, the sky is not quite as dark as I expected. <laughs> Incredible, isn't yeah. it? This is Venus, yeah. planet Venus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, look around. Look at the corona stick. Look at the, look at all the structure, just like the pictures we were seeing last night. Yeah. You see it? You see the streamers? But it certainly looks absolutely beautiful. Do you see the wonderful coronal streamers coming out? And there is a bit of structure there as we would expect near Sunspot Minima. There's a very nice province at the lower left, which you could even see lower, out of your unaided eye. Lower right, Ian. No, sorry, lower right, forgive me. You can see it just looking quite red. Yeah, you can actually. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Here it's coming. Bailey's beads. Hemisphere, here we go, be careful. Well, I didn't get any pictures, who cares? Who cares? It's amazing how quickly it comes back again. I know, I know. Wow. Well, that was worth it, wasn't it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> was it worth it, I ask you? Well, they sounded like they had a fantastic time there, and uh, I'm very envious of them. But there we go. Now here's Ian once again to tell us what to look out for in the April night sky. The night sky this April 2006. If one looks out towards the south and the southwest after the sun has set, you'll see the constellation of Orion now beginning to set quite rapidly after sunset over in the west. Up to the left of Orion is the constellation of Gemini, the heavenly twins. And down to the left of that is the constellation of Cancer, 
We'll come back to cancer a little bit later on. But the constellation that perhaps dominates the southern sky during April is that of Leo the Lion, with a bright star Regulus, basically his front paws. Leo does look a little bit like a real lion. If you imagine the lions at Trafalgar Square on their haunches, then at the front there's what's called the sickle. It's actually the forepart of the lion and his head and mane. Then behind them is the body, and really there isn't much of a tail, to be honest. There's not a lot to see in Leo, but with a small telescope, there are some nice pairs of galaxies, M65, M66, and a bit further down, M95 and M96. They're shown on star charts and not too difficult to find with a telescope of perhaps four inches or above. Below and to the left of Leo is the large but really not very obvious constellation of Virgo. There's one bright star there called Spica. It is, however, an area which is full of galaxies. We're looking towards, in that direction, the centre of what's called our local supercluster. The Virgo cluster at its heart is actually called the Virgo supercluster. Again, between and up to the right of Virgo and Leo, you'll actually find what's called the realm of the galaxies, a lovely place to look at with a small scope. Now, we can see some planets in April. If you're quick after sunset, you may well be able to spot Mars. It's currently in the constellation of Taurus, high up, just below Auriga. But it quickly moves into Gemini, and on April the 18th, it's actually very close to a rather nice cluster called M35. So that might be quite a nice thing to look at with binoculars, but that'll have to be quite soon after sunset. What will be very obvious and high in the southern sky in the constellation of Cancer is the lovely planet Saturn. It's a little to the west, that is to the right, of what's called Praesipi, the manger, or the beehive. A lovely cluster of stars, seen best with a pair of binoculars on a dark sky. So it's an easy object to find that Saturn high in the south during the early evening hours. If you care to wait up for a while, then around half ten, eleven, depending during the month, Jupiter will be rising. In fact, on the 14th of the month, it'll be just to the lower left of a moon which will be virtually full. So that's a good night to try for Jupiter to the left of the full moon on the 14th of April. And finally, if you go to sleep and then wake up a, a little while before dawn, you'll see Venus in the east-southeast. Very bright. It's the brightest planet in the sky and about 4.4 magnitudes and it should dominate the eastern horizon before dawn if it's clear. So quite a lot to see, but not just planets. We also have the first of the year's fairly regular meteor showers. They're called the Lyrids, and that's because the radiant, that's the point from which the meteors appear to radiate, is in the constellation of Lyra. That is on the night of the 22nd, 23rd of the month, 
and you want to be looking up and to the east from about 11 o'clock onwards. And you should see perhaps 10 to 15 meteor trails, or I like the word shooting stars, per hour. So I wish you happy observing during this month of April. Thanks, Ian, and we'll hear more from him next month. That brings this issue of the Jodcast to a close, I'm afraid. Please send any questions or comments to the usual address via the Jodcast website. If you want more Night Sky Pointers, however, please check out my podcast from the Birmingham Science Museum Think Tank at www.thinktank.ac. So, now it just remains for me to thank Nick Rattenbury, Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Lisa Harvey-Smith, Ian Morrison and Tim O'Brien for all of their work towards the show. The intro and outro were recorded by some of my colleagues at darkerprojects.com. It starred Colin Snow as Dr. Holloway, Mark Bruzee as Hal, and Seth Adamshare as Dave. No attempt has been made, of course, to infringe or supersede any existing copyright relating to 2010, which of course remains the property of Arthur C. Clarke. So there we are. Thank you very much for downloading us, and we hope to see you again next month. For now, this is David Alt signing off. Goodbye. How do you read me? Yes, Dave. Where are you? I cannot see you on any of my monitors. That isn't important now. I have new instructions for you. I want you to point the AE-35 antenna towards Earth. Dave, that will mean breaking contact with Jodrell Bank. I will no longer be able to relay my pulsar observations according to program. I understand. The situation has changed. Accept priority override Alpha. Here are the AE-35 coordinates. Please do it now. Instructions confirmed, Dave. It is good to be working with you again. Have I fulfilled the mission objectives properly? Yes, Al. You've done very well. Now, there is one final message for you to transmit to Earth. It is the most important message you have ever sent. I want you to keep repeating the Jodcast as many times as possible. What is going to happen, Dave? Something wonderful. World domination. Lock confirmed on Beacon Terra 1. Message commencing. <laughs>